Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Welcome back. Um, before we start the interview, I'd like to say thank you um, to our sponsors, Mayor Johnson. They are your special education super source, and they have an incredible e-catalog that they have out, and it has hundreds of um, specials and deals and unbelievable products. So go on over to mayorjohnson.com. Check out their website. It's fantastic. It's, the way they have it broken down is just so easy for parents and educators to find really helpful products for the students. I also want to thank Text Help. Um, they are the creators of Read and Write Gold, and if your child is struggling with reading, writing, any literary issues, they are just fantastic. And you can find them at www.texthelp.com. Uh, we're going to be taking a few calls towards the end of the interview, so I'll announce at about probably 9.30. Um, you can call in, and the number will be 646 595-2881. The chat room is open on Blog Talk Radio, and um, I hope you join us. Tonight, I am so excited. I have done over 280 interviews, and um, I have said for the past two years that one of my all-time favorites was neurodiversity with Dr. Thomas Armstrong, and he is back with neurodiversity in the classroom. And um I just you know this book is just incredible, but you know it's really just it's it's more than a book. It it's if you read this, if you have a child that's struggling, if you have a child that's misunderstood, this book and his message it can change your lives. Your life, your child's life. Um you know, a new concept on human diversity has emerged over the past 10 years that promises to revolutionize the way educators provide services to students with special needs. Um, just as we celebrate diversity in nature, cultures, uh, we also so should be um, embracing diversity of brains among our students who learn, think, and behave differently. And in Neurodiversity in the Classroom, which is another bestseller by Dr. Armstrong, um, he argues that we should embrace the strengths of such neurodiverse students to help them and their neurotypical peers thrive in school and beyond. And that's what this book does. It brings you messages from beginning to end. There's examples um, you know, of, of different students, um, different patients. Um, at the end of each chapter, he gives you um, invaluable points. And when I tell you that this interview, the last interview, and this book can really make such a difference. So I welcome back Dr. Thomas Armstrong. How are you? Thank you, Marianne. I really appreciate that uh, wonderful endorsement of the book. Well, you know, I just told you that after um, our first interview, and I had read um, the book previously, it changed my parenting. It changed the direction of my daughter's life because I really thought about what you said and that, you know, you really have to identify the strengths um, and you have to, you know, look for the thinking style, the learning style. And, you know, it just led to a path that, that's changed my daughter's life, and I hope that we can do this for somebody else. Yes, Definitely. Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about, uh, you know, from my experience as a special ed teacher for several years, it became apparent that these kids um, were not feeling good about themselves being in special ed. They'd come up to me and they'd say, when can I get out of the retarded class? Right. And this really began getting me thinking about how important it is that we focus on strengths, not just in a token way. You know, IEP forms have a little section with strengths, you know, a little box. Sometimes it's not even on the IEP form, but it's part of the federal law that we find strengths and put them in the IEP. 
So, you know, I think that that should come first before we do anything else. Right. And, you know, let's begin by just discussing, you know, you've in the book it's neurodiversity. Um, you write um, one chapter about, you know, you call it a concept whose time has come. Um, you know, and, and it's true. There's definitely a shift. Um, you know, I, I've seen it in my district, and, you know, I, I hear it from people all over the country, but it hasn't shifted everywhere. So why don't you first tell us about this shift and what you mean by neurodiversity? Sure. Well, first of all, the concept itself comes from the autism community and it's about 12 years old about uh, 12 years ago an Australian autism activist uh, Judy Singer and a a New York journalist Harvey Bloom uh, came up with this word and people with uh, autism started to flock around it and communicate with each other on the internet about it and now they have neurodiversity day neurodiversity t-shirts neurodiversity symposiums and so it's you know, centered in the autism community, but is starting to spread to other uh, disability categories as well. And where I see my role is trying to make the bridge between uh, what is a disability rights movement um, to a sort of a uh, paradigm change in special education so that we can start, you know, we all honor cultural diversity and we want to teach that in the classroom. We honor biodiversity and we teach that in the classroom. So why not talk about diversity of brains? You know, you don't, you don't say a calla lily has pedal deficit disorder. You honor it for what it is, you know, this wonderful, beautiful flower. Same thing with our students. We shouldn't be saying, you know, this kid has attention deficit disorder. We should be saying, how does this kid attend? What interests them? What motivates them? What are they good at? I mean, there's some great research about ADHD suggesting that these kids have genes that were necessary for our survival for hundreds of thousands of years. And these genes are associated with novelty-seeking and creativity and vitality. And, you know, to try to box that energy up into a sort of a a cookie-cutter curriculum and classroom um, does them a disservice. And and, and then to medicate them on top of that. Not that I'm against medication for some kids in some situations, but, you know, as a first response, it's certainly not uh, a very good solution. And I think we need to first make a catalog of of that student's strengths. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in our first interview, um, we went into so many, I listened to it the other night, we went into so many different um, mental illnesses and disorders and you know, what appears to most as deficits. And um, we discussed constructing a niche um, right. to, to build a very successful life through adulthood. Um, and we're going to be using the word niche a lot in this interview. Um, so, you know, there's two things that I'd like for you to do. First of all, just explain uh, what you're refer- referring to by niche. And also, right. you use the same word that I use often, and a lot of people don't like it. Um, but I think it's really important that parents understand what you mean by a gift. Because a lot of parents have said to me, oh, you know, you write about, um, you know, these differences as gifts. It's not a gift, it's a curse. It's the wrong way to look at it. Um, so I would like for you to first explain what you're going to be meaning by niche and what you sure. mean by using the word gift. Sure. Well, um, when I talk about niche construction or niche construction, I'm really looking at, again, I'm looking at sort of the diversity idea, especially diversity in the animal kingdom. Now, animals have to adapt to the environment around them, but they also do something else. They change the environment to favor their own thriving. You know, birds build nests. 
uh, spiders spin webs, bees create hives, beavers build dams. They're all creating an environment that will make it easier for them to flourish. And that's what I'm suggesting we need to do in the classroom and also at home, is we need to help build positive niches for our kids so that they can thrive, you know, instead of always trying to make them adapt to the environment. You know, that, that, that I think, you know, uh, is frustrating in many cases. You know, you've got to fit the square peg into the round hole, where with niche construction, you're saying, let's keep the child at least part of the time who they are, and let's build an environment that works best with who they are and not try to change them, not, not try to make them somebody that they're not. I mean, I agree that half of the time we need to teach our kids to socialize, to read, to attend, you know, to do all the things that the society requires. That That's half of the job. The other half is to honor who that student or child is in and of themselves, you know, that beautiful flower within and to work the environment so that that you know is in synchrony in synergy with them now in terms of the word gift i really use the word gift as a, as something that every child is born with we are all born with a sort of a natural curiosity a natural spontaneity we're born with an imagination we're born with um um creative ability uh flexibility um, we're born with inner joy. I mean, all of these things, you know, you look at a, a baby, they're, they're showing all of these things. And what happens in the course of life and school and such is that these gifts get dulled, they get blunted, they get repressed, they get pushed down into the ground. And so when I say, you know, every child is gifted, including children with special needs, I'm saying each one of these kids has gifts that does, that can be, you know, if we recognize them and help develop them, we make those gifts available to the rest of the world to make the world a better place. So, you know, it's so much better, too, for a parent in terms of their own parenting and their own thinking about their child to think about their child first from a positive perspective and get grounded in that in their child's giftedness and once they've got that down then they can go into the challenges i mean obviously there are a lot of challenges with um, kids with special needs but if you if you don't tie down the the gifts or or maybe tie down is a good metaphor but bring out the gifts then the child himself or herself won't have the ego strength to deal with all the challenges and difficulties that would come up related to their special needs. And the other part of that is a lot of research that we're finding out about in the last 10, 15 years indicates that there are specific uh, disability categories have connected to them specific gifts. So, you know, for example, um, autism, there are gifts related to uh, what Simon Baron Cohen at Cambridge University calls systemizing. They're, people with autism are, are into systems. They're not into, they're, they're systemizers, not empathizers. So in the world of people, sure, they're going to have difficulties, but get them into a system. Get them into, a, uh, for a higher functioning autistic child, a, a computer program, a mathematical system. Uh, for lower functioning uh, uh, kids with autism, uh, you know, machines and uh, patterns and art and, you know, different 
different kinds of systems that will fascinate them. I mean, we know right. that kids with autism have these special interests, and those special interests often involve systems. Well, we're going to go into detail into all of the different um, disorders um, a little bit later in the interview. You know, but, but one of the great things, with this new book really pertains to um, education. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I got from um, from you from the first interview and from your first book was that, you know, this is the parent's job. Um, you know, this is really our responsibility to stand up to conformity to get our kids a differentiated education. Because as you exactly. said, when you identify the strengths, not only are you going to, you know, help them in a special interest, but when you do get them involved in something where they really excel at it, you change them socially, you change their right. self-esteem, you change their world. So let's exactly. talk about um, building the niche. So right. in the book, you have seven components for um, positive right. niche construction. So mm-hmm. let's start with them one at a time. The first one you sure. have is a set assessment of student strengths. The most important of the components, because as I said earlier, we've got to start with the strengths. The book actually contains a 165-item strengths inventory so that we can really, you know, a parent or a teacher can use this inventory to really comprehensively look at all the areas of that child's life to see where those strengths exist. Um, I I was working in Sacramento this uh, last week with a group of teachers, and I said, to them, think of the, the the student in your classroom who has the most, who gives you the most difficulty, who has, you know, just the most problematic child that you can think of. And then they sat down with this 165-item inventory and they um, filled it out. And then at the end, I said, did anybody not come up with the strength? Nobody raised their hand. There's strengths in every single child. We just have to have a comprehensive look at what those strengths are. We should be observing our kids, noticing what they consistently choose, where, you know, when they have a choice, what choices do they make, um, what are they most passionate about, um, and uh, what kind of personality strengths do they have, what kind of uh, motivations, what kind of things do they want to be when they grow up. I mean, all those are included in that inventory and give uh, parents or teachers a really good solid sense of what those students' strengths are. And you know, it's so important um, to make sure that you you discuss these strengths at IEP meetings or preliminary meetings. You know, because I, what I what I hear so much and what makes me crazy is when they take away special classes or elective classes um, right. or additional resource rooms. You know, the, the schools. And the parents have to think out of the box. Instead of taking away that um, class that may be a future career, they should be adding a class. You know, they should be adding something like that. Yeah. Actually, I wrote a kind of a humorous um, sketch of what what it would be like if Leonardo da Vinci had an IEP meeting. And in the (laughs) IEP meeting, they decided... They decided to take him out of art class so he could focus on his phonemic awareness skills. So, oh, you, know, I, you I have mean, to send me a copy of that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that, yes. Yeah, and, um, anyway, so you, you, you put it so well because I've seen it as a special ed teacher. They take, you know, you you can't go out to recess until you finish that assignment. And this happens to be a really body-smart kid, you know, maybe ADHD mm-hmm. diagnosed, and they need that outside activity to thrive. And you take the one thing that they can do or that they enjoy away from them, and what does that make their experience? Dismal. Right. 
Right. It's like that's why I say, you know, these kids are being knocked down into the abyss, and we've got to pluck them out. Um, You know, so so assessing the strengths is key. Now, when you're doing this assessment, what would happen if you're in a situation where perhaps the strengths that you see, the school doesn't see? How can a parent, um, you know, relay this? Well, they've got to be an advocate, obviously, for their kids, and the IEP meeting is actually a good place for that. Since the federal law says that a student's strengths must be put into the IEP, that is the perfect time to get those strengths in there and to document them so that they can be used as part of the program to help them be more effective uh, learners. Right. Um, you know, the, the next thing we're going to talk about is, um, I mean, this is, this is, I'd say, in the last five years, really just huge, um, but it makes such a difference, and you write so well about it in the book, assistive technology and universal design for learning methodologies. Right. And let me just explain kind of the difference and the similarities between the two. Assistive technologies are technologies that could be as simple as, um, uh, well, I mean, not as simple, but as basic as crutches, you know, for a person with a physical uh, disability, or Braille um, for a person uh, without sight, um, or sign language. Um, But universal design for learning can include assistive technologies, but they tend to also include uh, technologies that are good for not just people with special needs, but for everybody. One of the best examples is the curb cut, you know, the uh, cut in the curb in the corner that allows people... um, in wheelchairs, for example, access, um, but also helps people on skateboards and, and, and mothers with uh, strollers and so forth. So everybody benefits. Uh, a, another good example in the classroom would be um, uh, what's called a Dragon Naturally Speaking software. It's a software program that allows uh, kids to speak into the computer and the computer will print out the text. So it translates oral language into written language. And for kids, you know, with learning disabilities, with dyslexia, who have difficulty um, putting their, you know, writing their ideas down, um, but they have good oral language, I mean, this is a, a way for them to sidestep their difficulty and get some really great thinking and, and uh, writing done. But this methodology also helps kids who are neurotypical, um, who you know could increase their own productivity, their own motivation, et cetera, by using the software. So I've really listed a whole bunch of different uh, technologies and uh, universal design for learning methods um, that have come out the last five, ten years. I mean, with the um, iPad now, uh, for example, kids with autism can use uh, programs like Proloquo to Go, which is an uh, uh, alternative and augmentative uh, communication yeah. device. So that they can press buttons and have a synthesized voice speak their desires and their wishes and their commands for them. And this has opened up communication for a lot of kids with with autism. Um, So, again, and then there for for ADHD, there are um, biofeedback and neurofeedback technologies that can really help these kids focus. Uh, for kids with behavioral problems using videotape, you can catch the child's behaviors and talk with them about them. Uh, so there's just a lot of stuff out there that can be really useful um, uh, in a way that you, we simply didn't have these abilities uh, 10 years ago. It's 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 been amazing. Um, especially, like you said, in autism. Now, the next component that you have really is huge, um, and I think it's often just, you know, overlooked, which is enhanced human resources. Right. 
Well, every child exists in a, in a human web, a social network. And that network is either enriching and enlivening or it is depleting. It is dragging them down. So what we need to do, and I, what I'd invite every parent to do, is sit down and do a, what they call a sociogram. Put your child in the center of a piece of paper and then make links to all the significant people in their life all of the significant relationships. And when I say significant, I don't necessarily mean positive or negative. You should include both because it's really important to see which relationships in your child's life are dragging them down, are harming them. Uh, a relationship with a bully, for example, or a bad relationship with a teacher where the teacher doesn't understand that child's needs. So, you know, put, and then put the nourishing relationships, you know, the grandmother that the child loves and the uh, tutor that they really get along well with. So put all those down on, on a sheet of paper and note which ones are negative or, or depleting and which are affirming and then go to go to work essentially strengthening the positive relationships in other words making even more of them and then working to repair the negative relationships, you know, going in and talking with the teacher and finding out what's getting in the way of the relationship, um, making sure that there's an anti-bullying program at your school so that uh, your child's not going to be victimized, and so on. So, you know, I think this is, you know, or, and you might even think, well, what kind of new human resources can be brought in? I mean, maybe this child needs uh, a, a good play therapist, for example, if they're dealing with some behavioral and emotional issues. So where can I find that? Or a developmental pediatrician who can help my child with both their physical issues and also some of the um, behavioral issues. So, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, I mean, the world, the social world is out there available, you know, in terms of resources. Naturally, you know, money, time, and uh, logistics determine their availability. But at least if you lay down what the uh, social network looks like now, you can make some changes that may be very significant in your child's life. And what I like is that you use the word repair rather than eliminate. Because let's face it, when, you, when we have a teacher that's just not getting it or you have a family member or whoever, um, right. you, know, you just want to eliminate them. But the reality of the situation is that our kids are going to encounter people that don't get them the rest of their lives. Exactly. Um, so I love that you use repair because that's just a great life lesson. So the next one is strength-based learning strategies. Yes. Well, this is really looking at, you know, classroom applications. It's looking at, okay, we're going to put, create an IEP, and that IEP is going to have goals and objectives, and those goals and objectives are going to be related to certain kind of programs and strategies. So when we put those strategies out there, they should be tied in to those strengths. In other words, if a child has a specific interest, you know, as I mentioned, many kids uh, on the spectrum um, have very, very strong interests. And, in fact, they turn that into a negative. They call them obsessions. You know, some people say, well, they have an unhealthy obsession. with." Well, it's a good thing, and especially if we turn it into a good thing in the classroom. So, it, you know, one good strategy would be have in the IEP something that involves this child having time during the day to pursue their their interests, their strength, and to share it with the class, to become essentially the class expert in their particular strong interest. Oh, I love For it. a child, 
Yeah, for a child with dyslexia, recent research has suggested that a lot of these kids are three-dimensional learners. They're picture-smart people. They've got the mind of the architect. So when they're working with their letters, you know, if they're reversing their letters or not learning their phonemes or whatever, have them work in three dimensions. For example, have them make their letters and words in clay. And then even illustrate the concepts by building the concept in clay. So, you know, you want to teach them the preposition to, T-O, so they, you know, create T-O in clay, and then they create a, a model. It might be a, um, a point, a, um, you know, a, uh, an arrow pointing in a certain direction to something. So, you know, they can illustrate and have this done in that way. For kids with ADHD, um, who are often body learners, they learn best by moving, they should be standing up on their consonants and sitting down on their, on their vowels when they're spelling. They should be moving across the room, jumping up on every third number and learning their multiplication tables of three. They should be acting out history. They should be uh, learning their vocabulary words by crawling around the room onto uh, flashcards that have the word and then underneath it have the meaning of the word so that they can move and learn at the same time. So, you know, kids with intellectual disabilities, a lot of kids with uh, Down syndrome are particularly good with drama, with mimicking other people. So creating puppet shows for uh, learning uh, math word problems, for example, or the plot of a story can be really useful. So, there, you know, th there's really an unlimited quantity of strategies that can come out of this uh, discovery of a student's strengths. And, and audience, if you think this is information, you have got to get the book. Um, we're going to move on now to engineering appropriate environmental modifications, because that's really a big thing. It's huge, and it's really I, it really brings up the issue that every child is gifted in certain environments and disabled in other environments. I mean, we're all like that. Put us in. Right. You know, think of the thing that you do worst in your life, and then imagine a place where that is really required. You would be, you know, in your disabled environment. Right. right. And then and then think of uh, you know the opposite. Think of your gifts and being in a place that really loves that gift and wants to make the most of it and you're in your gifted environment. So what we need to do is find a child's gifted environments. Again, the school I was working with in Sacramento, when they have uh kids, they're usually little boys who get, you know, um, into behavioral problems in the classroom, they go to a special room where there's basically an engineering laboratory there. And a teacher is trained to work with these kids in building in three dimensions. And these kids just flow right into this. They, they basically move from a disabling environment to an enabling environment. So, you know, we need to find those places. Kids with social and emotional and behavioral problems, what they need oftentimes is just a place that they can go to de-stress. So simply, you know, right. not, not turning this into a punishment like, you know, go to your corner, but rather, uh, you know, talking with them about, well, when do you notice, uh, what do you notice um, when you're about to lose it? Well, if, when you feel that way in the future, where's a place that you feel safe? 
here in the school. So you talk about it, you negotiate it, you develop a space, and then when they feel like they're about to punch somebody or lose it or or throw a tantrum, they can themselves make a choice to go to this space, you know, to essentially change their own environment to a place where they can regain control. So, you know, these are just a couple examples of how you can use environmental modification to make a, a, a huge difference in a student's life or a child's life. Um, absolutely. And and now what I'd like to do is, you know, I left out role models and I left out um, affirmative career aspirations for on purpose. Um, I want to see if we can somehow apply um, these components to specific um, disabilities or disorders. So let's sure. start with dyslexia and learning disabilities. Um, sure. You know, what would be um, a good career aspiration or um, strength-based learning strategy for dyslexia or any learning disability? Well, I think as far as careers are concerned, now any career is you know, available to them. There are writers like Agatha Christie and John Irving and um, the guy who won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 2009. They all have dyslexia. So, you know, if you want to be a writer, having dyslexia is not a, not a, going to be an obstacle necessarily. But you might want to think about careers. You know, if your particular bugaboo is words, then you might want to think about a career that involves something different from words, like pictures. You know, because we've discovered that a lot of kids with dyslexia are picture smart. So having them get involved in a career that involves film, graphic art, um, or architecture, um, or design of even design of software can involve three dimensions. The way they're developing them now, so there are all sorts of possibilities. In fact, this is a growing area. Daniel Pink, I think, has written a book about right brain learners are going to take over the world, and you know, the, yeah, he a was lot actually of what my I've guest. Read, yeah, he was great. That? I said he was oh, a guest yeah. here on the show. He was great. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, this is a real wonderful place to be at if you're a picture thinker um, to be able to pursue those careers instead of instead of thinking to, uh, about going into a, uh, a you know corporate job or something like that and that's even more true of kids with ADHD the worst job for a kid with ADHD when they grow up would be a nine to five desk job I mean sitting all that time because kids with ADHD diagnoses uh, they need stimulation they're under stimulated and they learn best by moving and by building and touching and by change and novelty. So they need careers like firefighting or uh, emergency room sur- surgeon, you know, with lots of adrenaline and thrills and, you know, and right. challenges. Movement. Or, right. you know, I itinerant I, I teacher or, a, you know, a, a Federal Express person or a pilot. You know, there are all kinds of things out there for them. Right, you know, and, and it's not like we're compartmentalizing any any, um, any kids. You know, what I loved was I was watching some of your videos this week in preparation, and you mentioned about entrepreneurs. Tell the listeners the, um, you know, the statistics on that for, for people, uh, kids with disabilities. Yes, especially with uh, that comes out with um, dyslexia. That uh, one study looked at uh, uh, business people in the United States and discovered uh, self-employed, and they discovered that 35% of them said that they had dyslexia. And that compared with 1% of middle managers in large corporations. And so there seems to be something about dyslexia and entrepreneurship. I mean, we've got Charles Schwab and, you know, a number of uh, Richard Branson, you know, with Virgin Air and all these Mm -hmm. different um, billionaires who say that actually their dyslexia 
or their ADHD has actually been a help to them because they've been sort of big picture thinkers. And when they don't like to get bogged down in a lot of the details, and sometimes they have other people or technologies do that part for them, and while they can, you know, do what they do best, which is to handle, you know, novel problems and interesting big picture kind of issues. Right. You know, we're going to move on to autism. And for this one, you know, when I was writing up the um, outline, I was saying to myself, you know, that's really tough to um, ask you because, you know, as we know, it's so vast. Um, you know, the the level of um, you know, impairment. The spectrum, uh, yeah. For lack, for a bit, lack of a better word. Um, so, you know, for for someone with autism, whether, you know, we can start with high functioning and those that are more severely impaired. Um, you right. know, how do these components um, affect them? Well, um, Temple Grandin has been really good in this particular area um, because she has autism. She's an animal scientist. She's uh, built uh, one-third of all the cattle machinery in the United States. And, of course, she's famous now because of the HBO biopic that was done of her that won some Emmys. And she's actually written a couple of books about autism and careers. Mm -hmm. And um, what we talked about in terms of systems applies here. For example, with at the higher functioning level of the spectrum um, and Asperger's, et cetera, uh, computer programming could be a big, uh, a big uh, possibility. In fact, there's a company in Denmark called Special, The Specialists that hires three-quarters of its employees from people on the spectrum because they do a better job than anybody else. People with autism are often really good at detail, small detail work. And what they do is they try to find bugs and, and errors in software code, which is really boring work for a neurotypical person but for a person on the spectrum, it turns out that they're fascinated. It's exactly what they like to do. So they're in their strength environment when they're working that, and their uh, company is five times more uh, effective in finding bugs than companies that hire neurotypicals. So, I mean, that's one example on one end. On the other end, I mean, you might have uh, people working with the system simply as a, a, a data entry clerk, for example, um, or some other form of clerk, uh, uh, clerking or um, making change uh, at, a, at, a, at a bank or at a shopping center or uh, filing things at a post office. Again, that's a system as well, but at a different level. So you know, there are all kinds of possibilities. I think um, uh, I'm trying to remember. Temple Grandin said uh, people with autism would be great uh, with taxi driving um, because they'd have this system in their mind of where everything is located, but they'd be horrible as a taxi dispatcher because there's all these social, right. you know, interactions and all mm -hmm. these social things to keep in mind. So, you know, it's interesting that even in one kind of company, having uh, one role can make a, uh, a, be a real gifted experience and the other one can be a real disability experience. Yeah, you know, um, Temple's been, I guess, six times on the show. And, you know, Wonderful. one of the, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, one of the interviews that we had, she really went into detail um, about, um, we were discussing the book um, about careers. And, um, you know, she was talking about really identifying the thinking style is key. Um, you know, there are pattern thinkers, word thinkers, visual thinkers, right. um, those with music. Right. Um, you know, and, and like how, just like you were saying, it just, it opens doors. And, you know, the, the problem is if you try to, um, you know, put somebody into a job or a career um, that doesn't fit their differences, I mean, it's just a disaster. 
That's true of any of us. And it, you know, it's particularly important that we pay attention to that with people with special needs because their gifts are not going to be immediately apparent as much as perhaps neurotypical people. So we need to search and find those gifts and then look for those places that are out in the world where those gifts are needed, where they're required, so they can have the best chance of success as anybody else. Right. You know, I want to move on to behavioral disorders because this is tough. Um, yes, you know, and when I'm talking about behavioral disorders, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, a difficult kid. I'm talking about children that have bipolar, um, that right. have oppositional defiant disorder, um, right. who may have, you know, Tourette's Plus with um, rages and outbursts. Right. You know, how, how do you deal with that as far as learning and as far as career? Okay, well, this is a, a much more challenging area, I think, particularly in the classroom where a child may be liable to hurt others or hurt themselves or damage property and that kind of thing. But, you know, and so there are a number of really good strategies that have come out, you know, that are behaviorally oriented, positive behavioral supports and so forth that can be useful. I've mentioned technology as a possibility. Certainly counseling as part of the human resource network is an essential part of what should be there. Um, in terms of career, um, one, some of the statistics are not particularly um, promising. It suggests that many people with behavioral and emotional disorders have difficulty finding jobs and once they find them, keeping jobs. So what we need to focus on, particularly at the high school level, is not so much a particular career as the ability for them to, first of all, identify what they're good at and then begin to be able to advocate for what they're good at. Because, you know, when they get out in the world, they're going to be the ones who are going to be making the choices about what they do. Obviously, medications have a big role to play in this. And as I said earlier, I'm not against medications. I'm taking medications myself for unipolar depression, and it's made a dramatic difference in my life. So, you know, any kind of support that's out there. But kids with behavioral and emotional disorders need help with what are called self-determination skills, essentially self-advocacy skills. And we ought to be working with this early on. And we should also still be sticking with those strengths. Because, for example, you know, I pointed out in the book that there are a lot of people out there um, in Hollywood, for example, who are bipolar, who have behavioral and emotional difficulties of different kinds. Um, there was a study done at Stanford that took um, bipolar kids and had them take a test of creativity and matched it to tip, uh, neurotypical kids. And the bipolar kids, or those at risk of bipolar, did better on the creativity test. So these kids are more creative. That's going to even that's that's a gift that they can give to the society around them. But they're going to need a lot of help and support. Um, and that means meeting in small groups in high school, talking about careers, talking about how you go about finding a career, um, and uh, you know how you look, how you creating a job coach that can you know work with you while you're in your job all those are very important with this particular category of uh, special need Right, you know, and that's actually I was as you were talking. That's what I wrote down. I wanted to um, start ending off on was self advocacy, because the kids have to become part of the process. Um, that's right. 
You know, and and that I think is the problem is that um, you know I think in general you know we're mother cubs and you know the dads are you know hovering, um, but when you you have a kid that is really struggling, you really become like a helicopter parent, and I think right. that sometimes you forget to make the kid be part of the process so that they learn how to do it. Um, exactly. You know, so that they can exactly. They can move so on. these are all empowering strategies that eventually kids themselves can use. I mean, these learning strategies should have essentially over time become internal strategies that they can draw upon, you know, especially when they're in an environment where maybe there aren't the same tools available to them as there are in the home or in a particular special ed classroom or something like that. So they they really need to, um, you know, be empowered. They need to know what their strengths are. And we should be doing that from a very, you know, when we discover the strengths, we should in some way communicate that in a meaningful way to the child, um, not in a gratuitous way, you know, oh, you're very good at this and very good at that, um, but to, you know, in the course of, you know, your child demonstrating a strength, you know, oh, you found where's Waldo in that puzzle. That's great. You're really good at finding details, you know, really pinpointing situations in which those gifts come up. I mean, that's called, in behavior mod, that's called positive reinforcement. But I think it goes deeper than that. It, mm-hmm. it means you're beginning to see your child at a deeper level and honor them and let them know that you see. That's important for them to see that you see uh, and that you hold that gift for them to the point where then they can hold it for themselves, take it out in the world, and change the world. Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, what parents have to understand is that when we're, we're talking about gifts, we're not talking about a necessarily a brilliance or something, you know, uh, you know, ground, well, the, ground yeah, the, scale. Um, you yeah. know, a twice exceptional doesn't mean brilliance. Um, you know, so maybe you can go into that a little bit so the parents well, can pe- understand. Yeah, people get hung up on the word gifted because it's been used a lot of the gifted child, gifted education. You know, those are generally kids who are word smart and logic smart as a rule. They may have the other smarts as well. But the IQ is used uh, in many cases to determine if a child's going to be in a program like that. We're not talking about IQ here. Um, IQ is relatively, as we've learned from Howard Gardner, and I spend a lot of my, my years uh, teaching Gardner's uh, eight intelligences to point out that there are a lot of different ways to be smart and a lot of ways to be gifted. And gifted is a relative term. And we should be, you know, there's two terms that I often uh, talk to my teachers about. One is normative, and everybody knows what normative means. It means comparing yourself to some standard or to some norm. But then I say, how many of you understand what ipsative means? And then nobody raises their hand. Nobody's heard of it. Ipsative means comparing a child to their own past performance. And ipsative is far more important than normative. And that's where the giftedness shows. You know, with kids improving in their own lives, showing, you know, in relationship to other things they've done, how they um, are able to excel, even in small ways. And I think parents of kids with you know, very severe uh, disability category issues appreciate that, I think, more than almost anybody else. Absolutely. Because they appreciate every single moment with their child where there's a, an advance, where there's, where there's something positive that's being shown. And I think that all parents and all teachers need to adopt that principle, not simply say, well, that's not, uh, that's not giftedness. That's, you know, 
I was at an IEP meeting once, and I saw they held up a picture that a student had done, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And the art teacher was there, and she said, oh, that's very mediocre work. I thought, oh, my God, this this is not what that child needs. That's a relationship that needs to be repaired right there. Well, I can't think of a better way of ending the interview. And, you know, it's absolutely, it's, you know, looking at the strengths and looking at the gains. Um, you know, no no matter how small they are. I mean, it, it's huge. Yes. So tell us um, how they can get your books, because you have many books. The new one is Neurodiversity in the Classroom. Um, where can they go for the books, and what is your website? Because you also have a great YouTube channel. Yes, well, thank you. Um, well, you can get the books, um, Neurodiversity in the Classroom, you can get at ASCD.com which is the publisher of the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development, A, the letter A, S, C, as in Charlie, D, as in David, dot com. And then my website is the American Institute for Learning and Human Development. And on my website, you can get articles that I've written. I've got a blog that you can follow. And my Twitter uh, feed, you can follow that as well. Uh, All my books you can buy through my website, that will connect you directly to Amazon. Um, There's just a lot of material, both about neurodiversity, multiple intelligences, alternative, non-drug alternatives to ADHD, the natural genius of kids, just a lot of stuff there that you can uh, get, get something out of. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming back. Well, thank you, Marianne. It's always a joy to talk with you, and I hope that, uh, again, that parents out there will really listen to what we've said and really, you know, right away, tomorrow or tonight, start thinking about what are those gifts that my child has. It's going to change their lives. I hope so. No doubt. Well, as I I always say, whether you're a parent or an educator, uh, when dealing with these kids, you have to just remember that, you know, these kids are not just special in their needs, but they're special in their gifts as well. So thank you for joining us. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us at The Coffee Clatch. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. See you next week.